we left off in the middle of the discussion about after the Kuzari rejects the, um, the Christian by basically saying that you're illogical and empirically I don't, uh, I don't uh, relate to what you're saying. So now we're moving on to his discussion with the, um, with the Muslim. So we're holding page 62, for those of you who are following inside. Um, page 62, number 3. So now he goes and he says that he calls forth a... Um, afterwards, the Kuzari called... No, number 4. Afterwards, the Kuzari called for a wise Muslim and asked him about his ideas and practice. So once, once, once... You see, what's interesting is the progression here. He goes from the philosopher to the Christian, to the Muslim, and then to the Jew. Now, you could just say that that was the structure of the way Rabbi Huda Levi wrote it. But the question is why he w- did it in such an order. In other words, you could deal with the questions differently. He could have done with the, with the Muslim first and then the Christian. Now, why he chose the philosopher first, I think, is quite obvious. The reason why he's speaking with the philosopher first is because that is the most distant from the, any ideas of religion. As we said, that the philosopher doesn't believe in religion. The philosopher believes that there's no relationship with God. So he wants to present the most, the, the antithesis argument, right? If the Kuzari had this dream where he experienced this idea that there is a God and that God does connect and there is a religion and there is a concept of connecting with God and divinity, so the most antithetical to that would be the philosopher. But why he cho- chooses to present the Christian's argument versus the Muslim's argument first is, is, is um, very interesting. Perhaps the main point is, is that the Christian is someone that has zero working for him, as we see in his response. The only thing the Christian has working for him is the fact that he believes in the ta- Tanakh. But everything else after that point seems to be utter, utterly ridiculous. Right? We spoke about this last time. There doesn't seem to be any real... Okay, you have Thomas Aquinas, you do have Christian theologians that try to make sense of their religion, but they have been struggling with their, with their um, doctrine for basically 2,000 years plus. They're trying to make sense of their doctrine. The Trinity, the fact that God was born, the fact that God died, the fact that God was resurrected, all of these notions are very antithetical to logic and to empirical evidence, which is what the Kuzari says. So he's sort of saying, he's bringing the contrast, I think, between the ultimate rationalist and the philosopher and the ultimate, as they call it, the blind faith movement, which is Christianity. It's the contrast between the two that I think he's trying to highlight the Kuzari here. I think he's trying to focus on these two opposite diametrically opposed, polar opposites of thought. And he's going to try to prove how religion, Judaism I mean, is not an extreme of one of the two. It's a synthesis of trying to bring them both together. And that's a very crucial point because when we, there are religious Jews who don't appreciate that. They see Judaism as being an extreme, as being totally, you know, dogmatic, a doctrine that requires faith without any rationalization, where you're totally compare, where you're tro- tro- totally relying on ideas that you seem to seem to be distant and sort of foreign to you. And the Kuzari is going to try to bring it more to a place where you could recognize how it's not as foreign as you think. It's not just diving in. It's not just a pure, um, a pure matter of faith or belief but it actually has some grounding in, 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 in logic and experience, as we saw, in the, we spoke about the ideas earlier. 
And at the same time, the, the, the argument of saying that Judaism is purely based on philosophical constructs, where it's sort of the part of religion that makes sense to us, so to speak, we'll accept. Obviously, there's certain axioms we have to accept in that. I mean, the philosopher believes in God. The philosopher believes that there is an ideal to live up to. He believes that the ideal is perfection on the level of becoming an angel, but nothing to do with the relationship with God. So there is a philosophical approach, you could say, to Judaism as well, as we'll see, but there were Rishenim that held that the purpose of why we do mitzvahs is to perfect us as being like an angel, which seemingly sounds very much like the philosopher's point of view. So I think, perhaps, I haven't seen this, but I think what the Kuzari is trying to do here, Rabbi Huda Levi is trying to contrast the two extremes and say Judaism could be viewed from any one of these two extremes, but really, in truth, Judaism is a, is a combination and has a lot more to share or to give than just those two different extremes. And now, the philo- then now, now that the Kuzari is moving into the Muslim's perspective, the Muslim's perspective is going to deal with a very interesting um, dynamic which is very similar to aspects where you find in Judaism, We'll speak about it when we get to it in a moment, but where I think he's bringing a third dimension, an approach of understanding of certain, where you do have a combination of the two, because Islam from both has this combination. I mean, Islam is rooted very deeply in Jewish culture, whether or not they believe it or not, but they are rooted very deeply in Jewish culture. Muhammad was influenced mightily by, by Jews in living in Medina, in Mecca, in the Arabian desert. He was very much, he was infatuated with Jews in, in, uh, to some extent. That's why he vehemently wiped them out when they didn't accept him. But the, what? What's an infatuation? Like fully, just like you lose yourself, and you know you get you gravitate towards something just an extreme he way. He was trading a lot with Jews. Yeah, so later, that's why he wiped them out. He killed thousands of Jews who lived in Arabia at the time because they... What? Because of trading? No, it was because he blamed it on his religious ideology, but it was hatred built after all of that rejection that happened with him. But he de- in Islam, you definitely see a very, very strong... There's, there's a lot of Judaism, so to speak, within it. Um, recently, the New York Times had a picture of a madrasa. A madrasa is basically what we have a shir, right? So you see thousands of or hundreds of Muslims sitting around, and you have this, this, this cleric, the sheik guy, whoever it is, giving a shir, whatever the the, the on the 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 on uh, the imam, whatever it is, giving a shir on whatever their discussion, whichever masech that they're learning. But even the word madrasa comes from the word madrash, right? I mean, the Semitic language has similarities, but. It's not just that the language is similar, it's the culture is similar, and even a lot of religious ideology is similar. So moving closer to the Jewish ideology, I guess that's why the Muslim is put here as well, in that space. So what, is the, what does the Muslim there, say? That's so much Hebrew and, um, and Aramaic in it. What? Arabic has a lot of Hebrew and Aramaic. Well, Arabic is a Semitic language, which is similar to both Hebrew and Aramaic, because Aramaic is similar to Hebrew and Hebrew, right? It's a different language, but very similar. It all has similar structures. What? Um, my thing is the opposite way. It sounded like you're saying that because I really knew Khatila that... Yudha Levi is organizing it. He organized it, but I'm saying the Khazari, the actual Khazari. Like oh, I don't know if this is how he did it. I don't know how he structured. I, I don't know if necessarily this was the way he did it. I think that's why Yehuda Levi is doing it. Yes. 
Okay, so he says number five, on by 62, the Muslim said, we uphold the beliefs in the unity and eternity of God. Meaning, unlike the Christian who believes in Trinity, that's not what the Muslim believes. The Muslim believes in Hashem Echad. He believes in the same God mm-hmm. we believe in. So Judaism and Muslim, Islam is not considered Avodah Zarah. Hashem Echad the way we believe in? Yes, absolutely. Any- Only Hashem. If you say that Muhammad was a God, you'll be put to death. <laughs> It's 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 a it's it's sacrilegious. It's just like for us, kfira. It's for them, kfira. He was a prophet. He wasn't God. So that's why halachically we have right. You're allowed to go into a mosque. You're allowed to do certain things which you weren't allowed to do with 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 with, with, with church. Why is the hate so big? Well, we don't believe exactly in the same thing as we'll see. But the hate, why the hate is very big, is because it really gets rooted into a much deeper fight between Yitzchak and Yishmol. At least the way the Arachayim explains that the fight already started going back 4,000 years. But historically speaking, the reason why Islam has a much ish, bigger issue with the Jews, it wasn't always that way. It's more recently over the last 50, 60 years, or basically since the Hakamat Medina, when Israel was put in place, that's where you see this virulent anti-Semitic approach. It was never that way. In fact, Islam or the nations like the, 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 I mean, you had periods in history where you had extremists and fa- fanatics, but generally speaking, Islam as a group, like the, 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 they were very friendly, like, when, yeah, but, but, right, for Sahalamein, but, but, he had to fled the Almohads, because they were very, they were fanatical groups, like ISIS, they were fanatical groups, but generally speaking throughout history, till more recent history, the Arabs or the Muslims were very pro-Jewish, or at least they welcomed them. By, by the expulsion from Spain in 1492, the Ottoman Empire took in a lot of Jews. Most Jews that fled, fled to the Ottoman Empire, right? So it's only more recently that there's been this hatred between, or this, vir, this virulent hatred, where it became so like, kill against kill, because they feel they took, we took away their land, and etc, etc. But the concept of Esav saying Yaakov is more true than Yishmol. Yishmol doesn't hate Yitzchak. Esav hates Yaakov. And that's a rule, that the, the Christian that seems more benevolent to us are only benevolent to us because they believe that when, in order for Jesus to come back, we have to be there. And he's, they're willing to Pope at what was called the Pope's Jews. The Pope always had to keep alive throughout history a number of Jews so they could be what's called the witness people. That when, when, when Jesus comes back, they'll have to testify and witness to, to the rest of the Jewish people. You see? Aha! I was right. What? I don't know, that's a good question. But they have to be the witness people. That's why even, after, even when, when Rome fell to the Germans, the Pope, who was officially, there's a whole controversy we spoke about whether he was pro-Germany or not, he held on to his 12,000 Jews. He wouldn't give up the Vatican Jews because he needed them for his religious beliefs. So today, the evangelicals who speak about the love of Eretz Yisrael and their interest in, they're not interested in, 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 in us. They're interested in, in, in the becoming, of, not all of them, some of them. But and anyways, the ace of Saint Yaakov is more true. The fact that Yishmol hates Yitzchak is, is more of a matter of feeling like uh, who, who has the right place, like Marisa Machpelah, who, has, who, who deserves to be there more. But in ideology, we're much more similar to, to Islam than we are to Christianity. So that's what he says over here. Number one, he says that we believe in the unity and the eternity of God. That the world is God's creation. Okay, this was where he's arguing with the philosopher. And that all men are descended from first man Adam. 
okay, which is equal amongst religious beliefs, basically. Every, Jew, every religious belief believes that man was, there was an original man, not an original monkey, but there was an original man that from there we all descended from, right? We reject the possibility of corporality in God. Unlike the Christians who we said believe God manifested in a body, they believe God doesn't have any physical parts. If you find anything in our literature, the Quran, that seems to indicate otherwise, we would explain that those passages are written metaphorically. So sort of what we do in the Torah, right? It says, Yat Hashem, right? It says God's hand. We don't believe God has a hand. So what do we do? We explain that it's metaphorical, right? It's a, a form of, of, of expression. To bring certain esoteric ideas closer to man's grasp, right? L'shachich so'ez, and mamish what we believe, similar ideas, right? We believe that there's certain terminologies used in the Torah, the Torah speaks in the way of man. The Rebbe has a very interesting secret. Yeah, so based on this, it wouldn't be a problem. There's nothing of Avodah Zohar in Islam. There is a Ran, there's a Shittas Haran, the Ran holds that any religion that denies Judaism is considered on some level like Avodah Zohar. So that's where some hold you can't go into a mosque because since Islam denies Judaism, so not because they not that the core beliefs are different, but they deny the religious practice, and since they deny, that creates an avodah issue. It's a very hard run to understand, but that's what the run holds. So there's those that say they're going into a mosque is definitely not l'chadchilah the best thing to do. But strictly speaking, it's not it's not avodah and it's not a problem to learn their books. It may be very very uh, frustrating to read their books because uh, there's a lot of contradictions that flow from the different different uh, surahs and things like that. From the history, it becomes difficult. So you have to learn their Torah on it. So you have to really delve into it, but there should be nothing wrong with learning it. Um, but uh, what's interesting here is, is, is basically, again, this idea, so the Rebbe has a very interesting kisricha. The Rebbe says, there was a hist- historically there was a big debate whether God has any physical body. If you look in the Rambam, in Hilchus Tshuva, the Rambam says, to say that God has a body, in Hilchus Yisrael you're a koifer, basically. The Ravid, right, the Ravid says on that, how could you be? There was G'daylam that held that God does have some, some corporality, he does have a body, he does have some physical entity. Now, to us, that sounds extremely strange, right? To believe that God has any physical form sounds extremely ridiculous. But the Ravid says that, and the Rebbe addresses this question in the Sicha. And the Rebbe says, how could it be that G'daylam held that God has physicality to him? That seems to be Avedazar, it seems to be a Kfira. And the Rebbe addresses this from a number of perspectives. But one interesting thing, if you want, you can learn to see for yourself. One interesting thing the Rebbe points out is that when you teach a child, when you teach a child, right, that God has a big hand, right, is that a problem of teaching a child kfira? Like saying that God took us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. What does a child imagine in his mind? A big hand. So is it, isn't that kfira? Wouldn't that be a problem of kfira of saying God has physicality to him? So the Rebbe says something very interesting. The Rebbe says, no, it's not, because at every level, we have to mature in our knowledge of God, right? What does a child think when you say God has a big hand? What type of hand does he think he have? The biggest hand in the world, right? When you're a child, when you're going to think about God's hand, what's God's hand? So the Hulk paused 20 times, right? The biggest hand in the world you could imagine, yeah? That, that's, that's the imagination of the child. That's what the imagine. So... Why would the child think that way? Because the child only use, could only ha- live in a very concrete imagination. At least images have to be very real to them. The idea of abstraction is not something they could relate to. But what do they think of that big hand? Do they think of the hand as the hand itself has power? Or it's the energy that flows through the hand that's powerful? 
It's the energy that flows to the hand. What makes the hand powerful? It's the energy behind it, right? The fact that you could have a very big hand, but if it's dead, it doesn't do anything. So even a child perceives that there's the biggest hand with a lot of energy in it. And the Rebbe says that's a level of maturity. You have to develop a certain sensitivity to abstraction, to depth and understanding and recognition to realize that God doesn't have those physical hands. So it's not a problem of kfira. But inherent or part of our, our religious belief is that we don't is that there is no such a thing as physicality to God. There is no physicality, unlike the Christian who believes there is physicality. He continues, we further believe that our holy book is the word of God and that indeed the wondrous text itself proves this. So they believe, if you read the Quran, one of the issues, issues with the Quran is that's why you have two groups. You have Shiites, Shiites and um, Sunnis. What's the, what, one, of, one of the major differences between the Shiites and the Sunnis is in how to interpret the Quran. So the Shiites take it very literal, right? They think when it says an eye for an eye, it means literally. So what happens, what do you have Shiite, Shiite law, which is uh, extreme, you know, they, I mean, even, even, even Sunnis are pretty extreme, right? Even, let's say, in Saudi Arabia, which is primarily Sunni, they'll still chop off a woman's head if she was convicted for adultery. But in, in Shiite law, it's literally that way. If you stole, your hand gets cut off, right? Or you're, if you looked at something you weren't supposed to, your eyes get burned out. Like, they're literally that way. They have extreme, they, they don't interpret anything. So basically, you have flaws throughout the whole Quran. Because Muhammad, when he went through his rants, there was stages he was more sane and the stages where he was a lot more, you know, in a state of ranting. So you see the difference of tone between his more calm self to where he gets angry. You see it. It's sort of like a nice musical, uh, you know, you ever listen to, uh, to, to uh, Beethoven? So you hear like the intense moments and then the more calm. Dum, 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 dum. Right? So like that's the... Like that, that, that flow. What? Right, exactly. So like... Like you sort of get that feeling a little bit, not that I'm very well, well versed in the Quran, but you see some of this like very striking. So they don't necessarily feel the need to translate because the word of God you can't manipulate. You can't play with the word of God, right? You don't understand it, but this is the word of God coming straight through Muhammad's mouth. He was illiterate. It means he couldn't write and he couldn't read. So everything had to be written down for him. So there came a lot of confusion as to what he said also. So you have many different versions of what he said. Until finally they had to codify and canonize what is the true Quran. Maybe he was just crazy. What? Crazy. Well, that's what the Rambam says. He was Meshuggah. The Rambam says that he actually was insane. He was bipolar. He was mentally ill. Um, which would explain a lot of the fanaticism in Islam. Because you're dealing with an insane person who wasn't stable, so he has, like I said, these fanatical rants in the Quran, which explains it. You see the fanaticism, very strong fanaticism. Actually, um, instead of diagnosing people, they just made religions out of them. That's a very good point, yes. Right? That's a very good point. Um, the, the, the interesting thing is, is that at the same time, the Sunnis will explain it. They'll try to give a whole Gemara on it. They'll try to make sense of it. They'll explain what it really means. And, um, and uh, I mean, the, the, it's very clear. You see the tactics, the way the Islam, the way the Muslims run, let's say, war. They're willing to make a ceasefire if they need time to, to regroup. That's clearly from the Quran. The Quran says that. That you attack your enemy, you fight, you allow, and you allow to make peace only if you need more time to regroup. They do it. I mean, Israel has never learned that yet. But the ceasefires, well, that goes back to what we said earlier about Israel not being independent. 
but their 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 mode of operation is totally based on 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 the Quran. But the Sunnis do try to give a little bit more of a moderate explanation to it, which is not as severe. But either way, you still believe it's the word of God. The question is, could you have, do you have the right to interpret the word of God, right? So I'll, perhaps lahavdul between the Prushim and the Tztukim, right? We studied Teresh Bapel like the Prushim. That means we believe we're supposed to translate the Torah, make sense of it through our seichel. The Tztukim said no. You have to stick to what it says, right? So on Shabbos, you now that have fire means literally you can't have any hot food, you can't have lights. We don't believe that. We don't take the Torah as literal as it says, right? But this, this, this again. The, the similarities between Christianity, uh, between Judaism and Islam, is pretty striking. Okay, right. There's levels in that itself. But in the sense of where you're taking something and trying to, like for example, it says does say we do find that by the teichacha God gets very angry, right? God is raft over there. It's pretty intense. So the Christian says that's not God. That's the devil. That's not real, right? But from us, our Jewish perspective is, is that that's, that's God's um, expression. Like the Gemara speaks about the afachema of the Abishur, the God's expression. There could be an angry expression of God that doesn't take away the benevolent undertoning of it. In other words, when, you have, when your father tells you, if you do that, then, you know, as a result, this will happen. It's not coming from hate. It's coming from, it's trying to impress a certain severity of it, right? And sometimes it's lashed out in a very strong way. Even have a din in that a person should put an Yaseira in his house, Ere Shabbos, as a Gemara Mehmet Likin here in Shabbos, a person when he's in his house Friday afternoon has to try to create a certain intense environment, not in a negative way, but with a sense of, of you know, make it happen. Shabbos is coming. You have to make sure the house is clean. You have to make sure the candles are lit. Asartem, Arasim, Likos Aner. That there is a form of expression which sounds angry, but coming from a healthy person is not real anger. It's a, it's a way of trying to be very sure or very secure and present a certain perspective. Yeah. Isn't the difference between the Sunni and Shiites the fact that they like disagree whether the pro- the power of prophecy should pass down? That's another argument. That's another argument. The question is whether or not Muhammad was the only prophet, or, are there prophets or there's prophets afterwards. Yes, yes, correct. There's many different. Dis- I was just bringing out this dis- distinction. Yeah. Um, by a parent, they're angry at their kid, so they're actually angry. Not only that they did something wrong, they want them to do the better thing, but sometimes they're just upset. Right. That's why, logically, nowadays a father is not allowed to hit his child. But let's say. Uh, so we don't say he's that about God, that he's angry and that... Right, we're saying is that a healthy person... We're just saying that he's not happy that... I had an experience... Right well, I'll give an example. Well, Halacha says even if you're angry and doing it just for yourself, you're allowed to. But nowadays we say, the Rebbe already speaks about that. That it's, you're not supposed to hit you know, your child. But I had an experience a number of weeks is ago... Is there a source for that? The mm-hmm. To hit your child or not to hit your child? To hit your child is born Yeah. Um, but not that your child is already. I'll show you. I'll show you sources if you want sources. Um, not the, that my father, but I got hit. I mean, that was a standard. That was people. That, that's the way they were. They were hit. Your father was probably also hit when he was. You know. Yeah, definitely. But it's a it's a it's certain it's a certain it's a certain way when you get so to a point of frustration. We've spoken about this many times last year, about knowing how to be in control yourself in order before you start trying to be a parent. If you don't know how to control your own temper, you don't know how to regulate yourself, and you don't know how to present to being a teacher versus being a, 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 an abuser, that's a very unhealthy parent. 
But I wanted to just use, use an example. A number of weeks ago, my son was, um, he, he, my wife was cutting him up an apple, cutting for him an apple. And so she went out to the kitchen for a minute. This was in the living room, in the dining room. She went out to, to the kitchen for a minute and she left the knife, you know, close to where she was. And my son is going to grab the knife. He's a two-year-old child. He's going to take the knife. That will, you know, he doesn't know what he's doing with it. So I told him very strongly, I usually don't speak that way to him, very sharply, don't touch that, it's dangerous. And so he got offended, you know, because he doesn't hear me speaking like that to him. So he got very offended or whatever. And I, I, it dawned on me so powerfully. And I was telling my wife, I said, you know, I presented, I projected anger when I was absolutely coming from love. And I was able to appreciate what that means. That you could project a sense of anger, a sense of like, of gevura, but the whole thing is because you don't want your child to get hurt. So I'm not saying I'm a healthy person and that, that I'm the ideal, but I am saying that it's very doable. This idea of being able to project a sense of anger of where a parent presents to the child that this is wrong, I'm dangerous, and not get personally involved. I mean, listen, it's very hard for a father not to get personally involved. He doesn't want his child to get hurt. But at the same time, where it's not because you don't feel like you're in control of the situation, and therefore you're going to do anything. Why would a parent lash out, their, lash out at their child? Because they don't feel they're in control, usually. They don't have the ability to recognize what's really necess necessary at that time. How to really educate a child is by actually teaching them, guiding them, and giving them an approach versus just shoving them in, in, you know, at a, in a, as a, a verbal tirade. But that takes a level of, of, of strength. First of all, inner confidence, strength with your inner self. And uh, that's, that's where unhealthy parents fuel unhealthy children, and those become parents, and they, that's where a lot of unhealthiness gets throughout generations. But, um, but in, in for us, with the, when God speaks about the af, the chema, in the Torah, when it speaks about God's anger or wrath, the way it's understood is that this is a form of expression that creates a certain s seriousness that allows for a person to understand that we're not, this is my betterment. At the end of the day, if I would tell my son, please, please don't play with that knife, he would laugh. I know what he would do, right? Because he wouldn't take it serious. He would laugh. And then he'll take the knife, right? It's like certain people that you start up with them, or, or you know, certain people get, you, people start up with you. So you have two ways you could respond. Either you could respond like, please don't do that again. What's going to be your reaction? What's the other person's reaction to that? The next time you'll just, they'll hit you harder, you know what I'm saying? But like, there's no, you're not, so you're trying to That's think. Yeah, but the what point is, sure? right, but that, but the point, versus you make a stand, you present it as a very severe thing. So anyway, so, the, but the point, I guess what we're saying here is, is that they believe everything is the word of God, and doesn't mean that God always presents himself in a way that we necessarily relate to it in its fullest sense, but everything is the, is the, of, of, of the word of God. Um, let's just go a little further. No mortal could ever write a book such as ours. Not even a single sentence such as those in the Quran. That's definitely for sure. <laughs> but uh, the, they say, basically the proof is that basically the Quran, this is a belief even till today. If you speak to Muslims, they'll tell you, you can listen to this on YouTube, on lectures, how the words of the, of the Prophet himself proves that it must be the word of God. It's impossible for there to have been. So we in Torah believe that also, to some extent. Like we say, how could it be that God knew what was in Noyach's mind, right? It says, Noyach, um, How did God know, right? I used to people that could write stuff. 
yeah, exactly. So that's where the right. In other words, exactly. So, but the point is, is that there is there is sort of like an, 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 a a way of thinking that, or let's say for example, of all the non-kosher animals that are mentioned in the Torah, two of them were not even around in the location where the Jews were at the time. So how did the Torah know about it? How did Moshe Rabbeinu know of these animals, right? How do you know of animals that were only dis- discovered or only? Right, or the other fact, right, exactly. The certain basic things that the Torah says seems to prove that there has to be some sort of divine knowledge in it, right? So the, 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 the fact that also it says, for example, that um, uh, certain interactions of, of how things were going to play out, right? So, okay, so it's spoken after the fact, but Moshe Rabbeinu is writing a book and we assume he's prophesizing about a future and you see the future playing out. So that seems to be divinely inspired, right? Um, so, but so again, what the Christian, what the Muslim believes, and we believe, is very strongly in that sense. But they have a different the approach of the Muslims. It's interesting. You can listen to our lectures, their lectures. They have a different way of thinking about this. For them, it's more than that. It's uh, literally the words itself is so magnificent. It's magnificent. It's so unbelievable that it has to be only the word of God. It's a very interesting thing. But they're right. No human being was able to write such uh, chaotic sentences. We also believe that our prophet Muhammad is the last of the prophets and that his teaching supersedes all the doctrines that preceded him. So this is basically the Chiddush over Christianity. They believe Jesus was a prophet. They believe Moshe was a prophet. But Cain the final word and testament of God, so to speak, is through Muhammad. He's the one that came to the final He's going to put together the actual final, the way to live your life. He calls to all nations to convert to Islam. That's a major theme. See, we don't appreciate the suicide bomber. What? Do they believe in Muslim? Yeah. See, we don't fully appreciate the suicide bomber. The suicide bomber is not just coming from a place of war. It's a religious ideology. And that is, what? To give yourself up in mysterious Nefesh, quote-unquote, for jihad in order to be able to convert, to create the world. You cannot live in a world where there is there's the infidels. If you have infidels in the world, that's your job is to convert them. This is a major theme by Islam. Unlike Judaism, we don't believe in conversion. We don't believe that the world has to be converted. But they do believe in that, and that becomes a very important idea. We believe that the world has to do, not the people in the world. What? We believe that the world has correct, to do, correct. The reward after death for one who follows Muhammad is the return of the soul to the body, which will dwell in the Garden of Eden. So they believe sort of in Tchiyas HaMesim. Such a person will lack no delight, food, drink, women, and all of his soul's desires. What? Elam Haba, right. So they believe you can have the 70 virgins and all that, right? Um, They had a suicide donkey a number of years ago. They strapped suicide... um, bombs to a donkey in Israel like probably 15 years ago so there was a big philosophical debate what did they get 70 but either way the Rambam actually addresses this point and the Rambam explains to us that Elam Haba is not like the way the Muslims believe some want to argue the reason why the Rambam is a very not natural type of believer in Elam Haba like he believes Elam Haba is not going to be within the physical realm is because he wanted a contrast against the Muslims he sort of writes that in the Mishnah Torah, 
where Elam Haba is not about eating, it's not about physical delight, it's totally a spiritual experience, versus from the Islam's perspective, it's totally a physical experience. That's the ultimate. You come back and now you can live life in the most... So what about the fact that all the Arab countries today are flowing in money and they have all the physical luxuries in the world? What do they need to come back for? Those I don't are, know. Those ones aren't killing themselves. Right, that's, that's the point, exactly. <laughs> They're happy where they are. Right, yeah. Well, that's because they don't need it. It's only those people that are miserable in the poor, con- in the poor places that need it. And so what are the... Um, uh, the... the whatever um, that are like gay or child molesters or whatever, what are they getting now? Well, the, the, the point is is that you're going to be reprogrammed to be a normal person. Uh-huh. You know, understand? That, that's the idea. But, um, is it true that if you don't believe in Mashiach, If you don't believe in Mashiach, you don't get Elam Haba? The Rambam says, the Gemara says, that there's certain people don't get Elam Haba, and one of them that doesn't believe in Tchiyas HaMesim. So it's not necessarily Mashiach, it's in the Kiyah Mesa. So how is it a real belief if you're almost bored? It's an age-old question. I mean... In other words, you know, if you don't believe in it, you won't believe in it. That's what Yisrael is trying to say. If you don't believe in it, you don't believe in it. It's only because if you choose to believe in it, that means you're allowing yourself to believe in it. It's a catch-22. What does even mean, though? choice in it. choice in what? In believing in it? You could choose not to believe in it. If you don't believe it, second. You don't get, you don't, you're not getting, you're not getting Elamhava. There is no Elamhava. Basically, you, you could believe in it and not want to do it, but you, you're not going to not want to do it because you only get it if you do it. But if you don't believe the whole kind of no, it, you believe it. No, at the end of the day, one second. At the moment you believe, you need to believe in it, you believe in it. If you, if you don't, it, it's like the Gemara says that the people who worry about these superstitions or these things, are they really harmful? Or are they, so the Gemara says, yeah, if you believe in it, it's harmful. Because psychologically, you know, it's going to come, to, Right. Here's the other other extreme. Chiyasam only works for those who believe in it. So it's 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 a catch twenty two. If you believe in it, that means it's gonna happen. If you don't believe it, it doesn't happen for you. Very simple. The Gemara says a person who brings a carbon. No, that's a whole big different machlekas. There's a big machlekas about that. We'll maybe discuss it another time. But the Gemara says that a person who brings a carbon to do tshuva, let's say carbon chatas, and doesn't have any thought, he doesn't believe that a carbon actually atones for her sins, it doesn't. Right? What do you mean be forced? If you don't believe in it, then it doesn't work. In other words, it's one of the same thing. You're connecting to something. You're trying to create that reality. So if you believe in it, that reality could be there. But you could forcibly not. You can't. It's impossible. Could I for? Could you forcibly feel love to your to your to your to to, to your family? Okay, that's a, that's why the, that's why Chassidus asks the question: How could it be that it could be a command to love? You can't force someone to love, and the answer is, you have to go through his bananas. What? Okay, that maybe we'll get to tomorrow. Well, just let me finish off this. Maybe tomorrow we'll discuss about that a little bit more. Let's just finish off what he's presented, what he presents. But he who rebels against Islam um, will descend into the never-ending fire. Look what we have to look forward to. And the suffering will last forever. Okay, well, tomorrow we'll have to continue a little bit. Maybe we'll talk about Chiyas Amesim and Elam Haba.